We invite you to turn in God's Word this morning to Luke chapter 4, and as you uh, turn there, just a, a reminder of a few things that have happened in recent weeks and will be coming up in the coming weeks. Uh, very thankful for God's blessing and provision for our church family. Uh, last Lord's Day, uh, you voted unanimously to call Jacob Roy as our next associate pastor of discipleship and family ministry, and we are very thankful for that uh, today. Uh, Jacob and his wife Rachel are spending their last Lord's Day uh, with their church family in Louisville, Throne of Grace, a Southern Baptist church plant there, and that church is ordaining him now for ministry. Uh, since we have called him to come here as a pastor, they are uh, joyfully sending him to us, and so uh, that is taking place this morning. So if you'd be in prayer for the Roys, uh, they'll be moving to Bloomfield on Saturday, December 17th, but uh, they'll be with us before then. Uh, Jacob and Rachel will be with us this Wednesday night and next Lord's Day, uh, and then moving on that Saturday the 17th, uh, initially to our mission house as they look for a home in the community. So a uh, lot to transition for them and for us. And so if you would just uh, remember to keep praying for the, the Roy's and thanking God uh, for his provision for our church. I'm very thankful uh, that God has brought us to this point and thankful that we can come together again this Lord's Day. Uh, to look to God's Word together and to learn from God's Word together. And so if you haven't already, uh, turn to Luke chapter 4. Uh, Luke chapter 4 will be our text this Lord's Day as we look at verses 1 through 13, uh, where we have recorded the temptation of Jesus. And so if you've been following along with us in Luke's Gospel, uh, so far Luke has taken us through uh, the birth announcements and the birth accounts of John the Baptist, and of Jesus the Messiah. Uh, he has brought us to the, the Jordan River, where John called for a baptism of repentance, where Jesus then came and was baptized by John in fulfilling the scriptures. And then uh, before uh, Luke brings us to this point in this temptation account, uh, he takes us through the genealogy of Jesus. And so what you have together there at the end of Luke 3 is you have this very clear pronouncement by God the Father at the baptism of Jesus, that Jesus indeed is the Son of God. And then you have this well-laid-out genealogy that Luke gives us that shows how Jesus is the Son of Man. We see uh, the full divinity and the full humanity of Christ in those passages that Luke has given us. And now we will see uh, those same things as we walk through uh, the life, the ministry, the death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus, uh, beginning with this temptation account. And so we're going to look at Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, and out of reverence for God's word, if you're able to, I want to invite you to stand together as I read our sermon passage for us today, remembering that this is the inspired word of God given to a doctor named Luke, an orderly account that he had gathered together uh, that our faith today might be strengthened. And this is what that orderly account tells us. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, 
to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will, if you then will worship me. It will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem. He set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they shall bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. You would pray with me. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that you might teach us how we might deal with temptation. That you might remind us how it is our Lord Jesus dealt with temptation and how through our Lord Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through hiding your word in our hearts, we might respond when we are tempted. We pray, God, that you would prepare us this morning to come to your table together, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Some of you are old enough to remember back in 1986 through about 1990, there was a, a comedian named Dana Carvey, he's still around today, but he became quite popular during those years because he was on Saturday Night Live, and, and one of the more popular skits he had on Saturday Night Live was called The Church Lady. Uh, the Church Lady was a, a skit with a character named Enid Strict, and she had a talk show called Church Chat. And on Church Chat, uh, the Church Lady would have guests come and she would interview them, but uh, the interviews all kind of were directed to the same place. Uh, she wanted to call them out on their issues, on their public scandals, on their sin, and then she would probe them with questions about uh, why it is they sinned, and, and it always came back to the same answer. It was because of Satan. Uh, everything they did wrong, every improper thing that was reported about them, it was all because the devil made them do it. There are lots of issues with the church lady skits, not the least of which is the biblical truth that the devil doesn't make us do anything. The devil can tempt us, the devil can put temptation in front of us, but the devil does not have the power to make us sin. And we see nowhere that more clearly than our text this morning as we come now to this temptation account that Luke provides for us, an account that we also find in several other Gospels, an account that, that shows us what Jesus endured just after his baptism as he prepared for his public ministry, an account that teaches us quite a bit about the divinity and the humanity of Jesus, but also it teaches us how we might deal with temptation today, because in that respect, the, the church lady was right. <laughs> There is a devil. There is an enemy. And that enemy certainly desires that you and I sin.
sin. And so that enemy is very active today, as we've read already, like a, a, a prowling lion seeking someone to devour. He puts temptation in front of us. Now the question is, is how do we, how will we respond to that temptation? And I think what we see in God's Word today helps us to better understand how we might deal with and respond to those temptations. So we're going to look at these temptations, but before we walk through them, I want us to consider for a moment uh, just the context of what's taking place here. Uh, Because Luke, in his orderly account, he he tells us quite a bit. Uh, He sets the stage first by telling us that the when that this took place. It's very clear that this happened just after the baptism of Jesus. In fact, that becomes more clear as you look at the other gospel accounts and you see that it was immediately after the baptism of Jesus. And so you have this moment, this public declaration by the Father to the Son, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that Jesus indeed is the Son of God. And right after that, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus to the wilderness where he will endure temptation by the enemy. Luke tells us not just when this took place, he tells us how this took place. He makes it very clearly that Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit. Now, when we consider the majesty of our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we need to understand that that Jesus here is fully God and fully man. And in his humanity, he is being spirit-empowered and spirit-led. And it is the spirit that is leading him now to the wilderness. Luke tells us he led him in the wilderness. We also read in other gospel accounts that he led him to the wilderness. So both leading him there and all along the way there, the spirit is leading. And Jesus is submitting himself to the leadership of the Holy Spirit here. And that's how he ends up in the wilderness. That's when he ends up in the wilderness. And then Luke tells us what happened in the wilderness. He tells us that Jesus spent 40 days there, and during that entire time, he was being tempted by the enemy. A casual reading of this text suggests to us that it was just at the end of this time there was temptation, but as we take time to examine more carefully this account, we see very clearly that it's all during this time, or from the moment that he's there in the wilderness until the moment he leaves He is being tempted over and over and over again. The scripture tells us about temptation, about the schemes of the devil in this way. James says this in James 1.14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The the language that James uses here is, is is fisherman language. These are fishing terms. And, and what he says here is that what the enemy does with us, what the enemy did with Jesus in this passage in the wilderness, is he wants to find out what bait we like the most. He wants to get that hook in our mouths. And so he will, through a crafty and careful process, throw bait after bait, lure after lure in front of us, that we might take bait. And so for 40 days, the picture Luke gives us is that all during that time, we have a crafty, scheming enemy who's reeling in the line. He's changing the bait. He's throwing it back out. He's reeling in the line. He's changing the bait. He's throwing it back out. 
over and over again, putting these temptations before Jesus in hopes that he might thwart the plan of God, that he might set the hook in the mouth of the Messiah. And that's the scheme we see here. That's when it happens, how it happens. That's what happens. And so now with that context in mind, let's just walk through these three temptations that we might learn from them. The first one I put there in your outline is this. Temptation number one is the temptation to question God's provision. To question God's provision. Notice there we pick up later in verse 2. It says that Jesus ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, one of the questions you might have just in that particular passage alone is, why didn't Jesus eat? Why is it that Jesus, during these 40 days in the wilderness, chose to deprive himself of food? And as we look at this in other gospel accounts, we see very clearly is that this was an intentional time of fasting. This was a, a spiritual discipline. This still is a spiritual discipline where one goes without food in order to focus fully on the Lord. To take that desire, that, that groaning, that, that hunger we have, that it might help us to have a greater hunger and appreciation for the Word of God. And we see very clearly here, Jesus is being led by the Spirit, and He is being led by the Spirit for this time to intentionally fast for 40 days. And now, that 40 days has come to an end. Now it would seem Jesus is at a point where he is he has concluded this time of fasting and now he is ready to eat, but he's in the wilderness. He's surrounded by stones. And so the enemy is tempting him essentially to, to set aside his humanity for a moment and in his divinity as fully God, that the Son of God, to, to use that divine power to manipulate his environment, to manipulate nature, to, to turn a rock into bread. And you might wonder, well, what's wrong with that? If Jesus could do that. We'll, we'll see him turn water into wine. Well, why is it wrong for him to turn a stone into bread in a moment of hunger? One commentator read said it this way, Christ, in this moment, he, he was tempted to provide for his material needs apart from the will of the Father. And furthermore, to go outside the natural order to meet his needs, to momentarily suspend living like a real human. Friends, the picture we have of our Messiah, of our Lord Jesus, is that, that he experienced life fully in his humanity. And he was tempted in every way that we are. Jesus was not pulling his divine power and, and manipulating things at all times so that he wouldn't experience life as a human, so that he wouldn't know what it is to be tempted. Rather, we see in this temptation account the full humanity of Jesus as he dealt with these temptations. And what is clear is that as the Spirit is leading him, it was not the will of the Father for him to just walk around and turn stones into bread. Rather, this was a temptation from the enemy. This was a bait that had been cast before him. And notice how he then responds to that bait. He responds with the word of God. He responds 
by saying no. He responds by not taking the bait. And that may have come as a surprise to the enemy because he had thrown this bait before and others had taken it. You go back to the very beginning to creation and what you find in creation is, is a very similar temptation that's cast before Adam and Eve where God in the garden says to Adam and Eve, here's what I have provided for you. You can eat of any tree in this garden, but, but you can't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That fruit is forbidden. All this you can have. All this I have provided. And what does the enemy do? He knows the bait to dangle in front of Adam and Eve. And it's the bait of that forbidden fruit. He comes to them. He, he entices them. He, he lures them to question the provision of their Creator God. To question whether, whether God really had their provision in mind. Did God really want good things for them? Did, did God really say these things to, to lead them to question the Word of God? To question the provision of God? And they took the bait. And now... Years later, Satan comes to Jesus, the second Adam, perhaps thinking, well, I've done this before. I've, I've fished in this hole before. This bait worked really well last time. And I know exactly how to throw it. He throws that bait in front of Jesus, but Jesus responds very differently than the first Adam. Jesus doesn't take the bait. Rather, Jesus responds to Satan by quoting the Scripture. He quotes to him from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Man shall not live by bread alone. Now, I want you to consider here Jesus' response to the enemy and the resources that Jesus uses to respond to the enemy and how those same resources are available for you and I today. Because it's easy for us to look at Jesus and, and look at Jesus saying no to these temptations and to say, yeah, but, but that's the sinless Son of God. Uh, of course Jesus wouldn't do that. But the Scripture tells us Jesus was tempted. And he's tempted just as we are, and yet He did so without sinning. And you'll notice here that the way Jesus does that is not from pulling from his divine power and casting Satan into a, a herd of pigs and throwing him off a cliff. Jesus doesn't respond here by just waving his hand and in his divine power casting Satan out for all time. No, how does Jesus respond to the enemy? In his humanity, he responds to the enemy in the same way we're called to respond to the enemy. Filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with the knowledge of God's Word. And friends, those same resources, they, they are here for every follower of Jesus right now in this moment that we might respond to temptation in the same way. We read this in Ephesians 5, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Give thanks always and for everything. To God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. God's Word tells us that we are to be filled, and God's Word shows us what it means to be filled. That the filling of the Spirit then leads us to do what? According to this passage in Ephesians, to sing with joy to the Lord. 
Do you sing with joy to the Lord? Do you sing each Lord's Day? Do you find yourself singing throughout the week? And, and as we're singing, as others are singing, do you find yourself meditating on the great and deep truths of God's Word? Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. Do you consider what that means? Emmanuel, God with us, Christ has indeed come. That, that we don't walk through a, a wilderness on our own, but but we, empowered by the Spirit, have been made part of the body of Christ, which we read in Ephesians, where we're to submit ourselves to one another. Do you submit yourself to others? Do you submit yourself to the authority of Christ in His church? Are you quick to pray for others, to encourage others? God gives us a picture here. He tells us we're to be thankful always and for everything. Friends, are you thankful today? Now, not just for blessings and joys, but for hardships and heartbreaks. This is what it looks like to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We are called to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the reason we're able to thank God in heartbreaks and hardships, the reason that we're able to sing and make melody to the Lord, the reason we're able to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ is because we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to do these things. And apart from the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we can't do these things. Well, Luke doesn't give us this temptation account and say, now what you need to do is vow and try harder. No, he says, you need to die to yourselves and be filled with the Spirit, be made alive in Christ. And as you're empowered by the Holy Spirit, you, you too can say no to these temptations. And notice the very practical way that Jesus does that. It's through quoting the Word of God. He, he quotes, not just here, but in each of these temptations accounts that are recorded, he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. And anybody have their devotional readings this week in the book of Deuteronomy? Anybody? But what is Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy is the, the law of God. Deuteronomy is a place where we're reminded of what happened to God's people in the wilderness when they did not follow the Word of God. That we might learn from their example. Jesus here has, has filled up his mind with the word of God. And it amazes me when you consider anything Jesus said to Satan would have been the word of God. I mean, Jesus could have said something that was recorded nowhere else. And then Luke later in his eyewitness testimony would have written this down. And it would be before us as the word of God today. But what does the son of God do? He quotes from the scripture because he filled his mind with the scripture. We're commanded, we're reminded in God's word to do the very same thing. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, its leaf does not wither, and in all that he does he prospers. Jesus is the blessed man. Jesus is the one here, we're reminded, who, who meditates on the Word of God and says no to the counsel of the world, the path of sinners, the way of the wicked. And through meditating on the Word, empowered by the Spirit, we might do the same thing. Friends, we, we can't be filled with the Spirit. We can't be filled with the Word of God and live as if we don't know anything about this. We, we can't 
In other words, spend every hour of every day filling ourselves up on worldliness and wickedness and then expect in these wilderness moments to suddenly become the blessed man and son. Well, we can't feast at the table of the world and not expect to have the fruit of that in our lives. That this has a transformative effect. Just like your diet, my diet, they have a, a transformative effect on our bodies. So, so you can, I can, eat donuts and desserts three meals a day all week long and decide Sunday morning, well, I'm going to eat a piece of broccoli today and that'll set it all straight. You know, maybe if I had a a half a teaspoon of corn, I'd feel better. I'd drop 50 pounds overnight. It's not how it works. It's day by day, steady by steady, our, our diet has an effect on our bodies. Friends, it's very much the same spiritually. So, so we can't feast at the table of the world all week long, all day long, and then suddenly think, well, well I'll just... I'll get a little bit of God's Word on Sunday or, or, or things are going bad for me. I, I better eat from the Word today. That, that'll fix everything. No, we need a steady diet. We need to meditate on the Word of God that we might be ready and prepared when the bait is thrown in front of us. When we are tempted to question God's provision. When the enemy comes to us and says, does God really want the best for you? Is that really what God's Word says? Temptation number two. Jesus here is tempted, just as we are, to question God's plan. Verse five, the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will if you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Satan in this moment, he offers Jesus the world. And I believe he had the authority to do it. He is the father of lies. He could have been lying about all this. But what we read from the Gospels is that, that, that Satan, for, for a time, temporarily, he, he's been given an authority in this world. In John's Gospel, Jesus refers to Satan three times as the prince of this world. Paul calls the devil the ruler of the kingdom of the air and the god of this age. And so it seems that the devil, Satan's offer here, is legitimate. But what's the temptation? Well, you consider that, that, that Jesus is king of all kings, lord of all lords, that Jesus, according to God's plan for all eternity, he, he will rule over all creation. So, so what's the temptation here? from Satan to give Jesus that which the Father is giving to Jesus. How is that tempting? Well, you notice very clearly that the temptation involves worshiping Satan. And what the temptation involves here is that Jesus might have the crown without the cross. That you just can just have it all now. No need to suffer. No need to be betrayed. No need to be crucified. No need to die. You can have it all now. He is tempting him to have what God has promised him, but to have it in a very different way according to a very different plan. And Jesus, again, he, he answered. You'll notice here from the book of Deuteronomy, this might be a good time to write your notes. Hey, read Deuteronomy. 
We meditate on Deuteronomy. Jesus here, he, he meditated on Deuteronomy and notice his response in verse 8. He said to him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. God's plan for Jesus was not to worship the enemy and Jesus knew it full well because God's Word told Jesus not to worship anyone other than God. The plan was clear. Friends, God's Word clearly gives us God's plan. And the reason so often we don't know God's plan or we question God's plan is we haven't spent adequate time studying and learning God's plan. And when the bait comes in front of us, we're tempted to take it. Jesus here doesn't take it. Why? Because he, he quotes again from Deuteronomy. Specifically, he quotes from a passage in Deuteronomy that points out the failure and unfaithfulness of God's people during the Exodus. And you remember that whole golden calf incident where the people wanted something to worship. God's plan was that they would worship Him and Him alone, and yet they decide in that moment to go according to the world's plan and their plan to be like those other nations, those pagan nations. And they cast in the image of a calf this idol of gold. They forsake God's plan. They take the bait. Friends, we're tempted to do the same thing, aren't we? I would assume this morning that none of you have in your living room above your mantle a, a four-foot half of gold that you bow down to and worship. But there are other things we bow down to because to worship something is for it to have preeminence in your life. To worship something means that that object is what's most important to you. Whatever's the most important thing in your life, that, that's what you worship. And the bait that so often is cast before us is to worship something else other than God. Meaning that something else other than God and His Word dictates how we spend our time, where our attention is, how we spend our money, what drives us in our life. And there are so many things that it is easy to put in that place other than God. We can put our family in front of God. We can put our jobs in front of God. We can put our, our activities, our kids' activities in front of God. We can put so many things before the Lord our God. And essentially, I think that's the temptation that Satan is casting before Jesus here is, is you can have that, but you don't need to go through this. You, you can have this according to your plan instead of God's plan. When we see people succumb to this temptation, we succumb to this temptation all the time. We'll do things our way, not God's way. According to the world's plan, not our plan. So it's no surprise that when we look at statistics and studies, we find more and more and more year after year that, the, that those in the church aren't thinking any differently than those outside the church. Whatever the world's agenda is, we just go along with it so often. It seems that we have taken this bait, but Jesus here does not. And neither does he take the next one cast before him. Temptation number three, the temptation to, to question God's promises. So notice here that Satan has, has put before Jesus, will we'll question God's provision, question his plan, and, and now we're going to question his promises. Maybe, maybe this will be the bait that Jesus will take. Seems to be what the enemy's thinking. 
And so he tries a different tactic. He tries a, a different lure. He casts it a different way. Notice in verse 9, Satan takes Jesus to Jerusalem. He sets him on the pinnacle of the temple and he says to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down for him. And notice what he does next. Satan now is going to quote the scripture. He sees how Jesus has quoted it. Well, perhaps he can quote it back to him and that's going to be the bait he'll take. Satan says, for it's written. And then he, he quotes from Psalm 91. He, God, will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. You go back to Psalm 91, you notice Satan doesn't manipulate the words like he did in the garden. He doesn't add to or take from God's word. He, he quotes the word to Jesus. That this word in Psalm 91, it was messianic. It was a, a promise of God to care for the Messiah. It was a promise of God to do these very things that are put before Jesus by Satan. This is God's promise the enemy is saying. He's essentially challenging Jesus. Well, do you really trust God? Do you really believe his promise? Are you really willing to do this? But of course, Psalm 91 is not in the context of Jesus jumping off the temple. And so, Jesus responds to Satan again. Deuteronomy. Go back, underline that part where you wrote down, read from Deuteronomy this week, because again, Jesus goes to it. He answered him and said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now again, you think about this temptation, and, and you, maybe you can identify this morning with, you've been hungry before, and maybe you've been at a point of hunger where it's like you would have done anything to have something to eat. So, so you can identify maybe in part with that temptation of Jesus to turn the stones into bread, even though you don't have that power to do that. But you know what it is to be hungry. You know what it is to question God's provision. And maybe you can even identify as Satan's temptation to, to, to give all these things to Jesus if, if he would just worship something other than God. And perhaps you can think about, yeah, there's, there's been times, perhaps even now, where you see other things more important in your life than God. But, but you may look at this and think, well, why is this really tempting? I mean, who wants to jump off a high building and see if God keeps them from dying? <laughs> that doesn't seem very enticing. That, that doesn't seem to people something that Jesus in his day-to-day -day life would have been struggling with. As if Jesus, when he walked by the temple, was always looking at it saying, you know, I just wish I could jump off that and see what would happen. But there's a historical context here. You see, the Jews in Jesus' day, they, they expected the Messiah to present himself in such a way at the temple where it would be clear he was the Messiah. In fact, one of the traditional Jewish teachings said it this way, quote, Our teachers have taught that when the king, the Messiah, reveals himself, he will come and stand on the roof of the temple. That this was an expectation. This was a messianic expectation. The people expected the Messiah to present himself in such a way that there he was on the roof of the temple. So this is a very real temptation. It's a temptation for Jesus to stand before the people and for the people to accept him as their Messiah. And then Satan just throws a little extra bait on the hook and says, you know, you know what would really convince <laughs> If while you're there on the rooftop and they're praising you as Messiah, you jump off, and, and God saves you in that moment, and there's, there's no questioning who you are then. 
Jesus doesn't take the bait. Because he understands that this, according to Scripture, would be a test. And we are commanded not to put the Lord our God to the test. We are commanded to trust the Lord and to trust every promise he ever made. So friends, that means we don't approach the promises of God and then say to God, well, God, if you really are going to do this, if you really are this, if this is really who you are, if you really love me, then you'll do this. If you really care for me, God, then you'll do this. Friends, that is to put the Lord our God to the test. We are commanded not with the Lord our God to the test. We are commanded to trust in the promises of God, understanding that those promises so often, they don't come to fruition in our timetable. God does not exist to do our bidding. We're here to do His. And part of that is to walk by faith and not by sight, to trust in Him as we see our Lord Jesus trusting in Him. And so consider this picture and especially consider how it relates to the Lord's table this morning. Because from God's word this morning, we're reminded that all the way back in the garden, all the way back in the fall, as God has provided for Adam and Eve, as he has made provision and given promises and laid out a plan, we're reminded that the temptation that comes to them by the enemy is what? Take and eat. Take from this tree and eat it. That's the bait. And that's what they do. And then, so many years later, the enemy comes to Jesus in the wilderness. And what is the very first thing that's recorded for us at the end of those 40 days? Is the enemy comes to Jesus and he says what? He essentially picks up the stone and to Jesus he says, Take and eat. But Jesus, the second Adam, he, he succeeds where the first Adam failed. And he doesn't take the bait. He, he says no. And so Luke records here very clearly that after saying no to that temptation and no to so many other temptations, that Satan departed from him until an opportune time. And that opportune time would come about three, to, three years later. That opportune time would come when Satan would then influence one of Jesus' followers, his disciples, a man named Judas, to betray our Lord. And Satan would lay out this well-orchestrated plan. He would bait the hook. He would put it in front of so many, and so many would take it. And in that moment, we see Satan believing that he has thwarted the very plan of God as Jesus goes to the cross and as Jesus dies on the cross. But God's word reminds us the grave couldn't hold him. Death could not swallow him. And on the third day, he rose from the dead. And now for us who follow him, we have before us this table. So that as we walk through this world, and so as the enemy comes before us, and just as he did to the first Adam and the second, he comes before us all the time, he dangles that bait, and he says what? Take it and eat it. Jesus offers us something better. Because Jesus offers us an invitation. He says, this is my body which is for you. This is 
a cup, which is for you. It's the new covenant in my blood. And what does he say? Take and eat. So that we might have life. Friends, I hope you see the choice before you and I this morning. Because so often we are tempted to take and to eat that which the enemy puts before us. And to feast on. But God offers us a better way. He offers us a better invitation to come to this table and to remember, to take and eat, and as we do, to remember that which Christ has accomplished and that which Christ will accomplish. That in these days for us, where we may find ourselves in the wilderness, we might also say no. Not because of our willpower, not because of anything in us, but because of the filling of the Holy Spirit, filling ourselves up in worship. And so the invitation for us this morning is to come to this table and to take and eat. And God's word reminds us that we find ourselves in this moment in a place where we have been teaching.